Welcome to the Desert Street Podcast, the podcast helping you develop forex trading skills for more freedom. I'm your host, Etienne Kret. We are in episode 135. Let's get started right away. Sitting today in Hong Kong with Mr. Ray Barros. Hi, How's everyone. it going? Hi, fine. Thank you, Etienne. Now, Ray, I want to ask you first, just introduce yourself, tell people what you're doing these days. Sure. Essentially, I retired the hedge fund. I had a hedge private limited hedge fund from 2000 to, no, sorry, 1990 to 2010. We started with 20 mil and when we finished, it was at 9.43, closed it off. And um, since then, I've been trying to run a school, which has been, started off well, but lately it's become difficult to attract the students. I'm hoping that's going to change in due mm -hmm. course. Apart from that, I'm trading a, an account for myself and my family and a couple of friends. So mm -hmm. still in the trading game. Interesting. What I want to know is, how did you get started in trading? And that probably comes back to a few years ago. So how did that happen? And what was the story behind this? Okay, you got to go right back, right? My dad was one person who wanted the best for his kids. And the only imposition he said was, you've got to have a degree. Now, as far as he was concerned, you didn't get a degree, you weren't going to make it in life. And so you could get a degree as long as you got a degree. I got a law degree. And I must say, I didn't mind the law, but when I was starting, I ran my legal practice. I had I spent more time managing the practice than doing law, if you, if you know what I mean. So I wasn't real happy at it. And then one year, my father-in-law said, come down to Hong Kong. I've got this great new way of making money. And we started trading the Hong Kong tail market. And it wasn't hard, you know. It looked to me, it was trading a very nice top, top range. And I thought, if I can sell the top and buy the bottom, you know, easy money, right? Mm. And I did that for about, I was supposed to stay for about four weeks, ended up staying about six or eight, something like that. And at the end of that period, I made enough money to be able to buy my wife a fur coat. And I had a little bit extra for myself. So I thought, this, this is it. You know, I love this. Time's my own. I'm going to get to trade. Talked to my wife. I said, I'm going to sell a legal practice. And um, she said, yeah, we're all in agreement. And just before I left, last 10 days, or last week before I left Hong Kong, gold broke out. And the 10 or 15% I'd kept for myself, I blew the account. But I ignored that. You know, I just mm. said, I'm not going to worry about that. Sold the legal practice, and 12 months later, I'd blown all the money from the legal <laughs> practice. So that's how I got started. Okay, okay. And then I guess that kind of goes back to the same story most reach out to this have, which is they start well, they have a bad period. But then the question is, how do you recover from that? That was, if you ask me how, my wife's going to kill me. She hates me telling this. but. If I have to put the success, call it blame, if I blame anybody for my success, it's my baby. Because for seven or eight years, the first successful year was 1987, sold the legal practice in about 79, 80. So that period, that seven or eight year period, the only reason I kept afloat, because I lost about 750,000 Australian dollars. Now, mm -hmm. you're talking a couple of million nowadays in today's currency, you know, that was yeah. 19. She was the one that supported us, you know, and I'm basically got to really understand what trading is all about, the probability and so on. When I did a course with Pete Stettelmeyer in Chicago, and she was the one that funded that, and she was living on 25 bucks a week. So tell you, you, you asked me how I turned it around. Firstly, you need the support of your wife, especially yeah, someone yeah, like Chrissy. Yeah. And then I think I came to realize, and that's what Pete taught me, that it's not about patterns. It's about the psychology of buyers and sellers. And yes, the profile is something that will identify that for you, mm -hmm. at least it did for me. But it's always about the psychology of the buyers and sellers. You've got to get in there and say, what is this chart telling me about whether the buyers have, have exhausted themselves, or whether the sellers have exhausted themselves, or are we trading a value area where you know there's fair price for both parties? Mm -hmm. And I think that, to me, was the key. My understanding of the markets came from that idea. Mm -hmm. I also look at the market pretty much the same way or in a similar way. And I'm curious to know, so for someone starting out who don't, doesn't know really how to apply this, how should they apply? Because that can be very subjective. Like you look Absolutely. at a chart and you have to identify yourself. To answer that question, you need to understand the way that I looked at how people improve. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the critical things that you need to learn as a trader is to execute a trading set of trading rules, call it a trading methodology that has a positive expectancy, that has yeah. an edge. Yeah? Yeah. And no matter what happens in your life, no matter what's happening to the results, that's irrelevant. As long as the 
methodology is work, it has that edge, then you've got to keep executing it. So I really do believe, depend, doesn't matter whether your personality is better off as a discretionary trader like I am mm-hmm. or someone who is mechanically inclined, I think you should start with a very simple mechanical system and make sure it's got an edge, obviously, some mm-hmm. sort of edge. But just learn that trading is involves execution of a methodology irrespective of what's happening emotionally for you. You know, you handle your emotions, but you have to execute that plan. Once you get that under your belt, then you go on to other things. You can become Mm -hmm. a discretionary trader because by then you've understood, okay, I find a way, a set of rules that will work for me. I'm going to follow them Mm -hmm. and we go from there. Love it. And how did you create your first plan? Because that's something a lot of people struggle with. They, They hear, I need to create a plan, but then how to do it, that's kind of the hard part. How to do it? Well, I'm not sure. I don't quite understand the question. Um, if you're trading a mechanical plan, mm-hmm. then essentially you either buy one that has an edge, and just be careful you don't, you know, anybody that says I've got a plan that never loses or got a 90% yeah. win rate, you know, put, put that away, right? But if you find something that actually has, you know, even if you copied something like a Churchill's formula or something like that, just something that you acquire the skills or you, you send it out to a third party to test the plan for you to make sure that with a bit of back with test back testing that that will show you the pitfalls that your plan might have or whatever, but you have a very simple set of rules. And that's what I would start with. Um, in the school of we teach, for example, we have separate levels, but the first level is for people who've never traded before. And we give a mechanical plan, which we tell them it won't work it's a plan where you enter the market at the beginning of the week and you more or less get out by the end of the week, maybe a week mm-hmm. later. And it's directionally, call it a, a short-term swing trending system. Mm-hmm. And what happens there is it won't work where the market is not moving directionally. So if the market's like that, it's not going to make you money and you have to recognize that. Yeah. So for me, that's what I think, that's where people have to start. They have to start at that level rather than get involved with Elliott Way or Wyckoff mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of people can to caught up in like finding the right indicators and using indicators to trade or finding this method and then they hear about this one and yeah, yeah. Change, changing too often. And, yeah. yeah, they don't give the method a chance. Yeah, yeah you know, that, that's the problem. I mean, partially it's our fault as educators, if I, well, not, not our fault, but part of the education that is out there is promising you this holy grail mm-hmm. where, you know, you can't lose you get people actually saying, take my system and you can't oh, yeah. lose money. Yeah. Yeah. Or I have a 90% win rate or all this. Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. There's a lot of stuff. And I got some email recently about that topic for sure. That's quite bad. And guys, we'll get to question as always. Comment in the chat. I know we have a few questions already. But I want to know, how did you transition from starting to trade to starting to manage funds? Did that happen like automatically? Or was no, it no, 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 it didn't. What, what happened was I had a, a really good broker called uh, Damien Hatfield. He's no longer a broker. He's retired, I think, in Australia. I was in mm-hmm. Sydney at the time. And he was working with a broken company called ANZ McCorns, which I think has since closed. I could be wrong. And he saw my trading results and said, right, you know, I think you could be successful in this area. Mm-hmm. And he got me interested. The thing with Damon was he suggested a route that I wasn't particularly happy to take. In my day, and this is going back 1990, so we were in about 88, 89, something like that. You'd have to go to all these shows because to be a hedge fund manager, you had to be a futures. There wasn't Forex. Well, Forex wasn't very big and CFDs were non-existent. So you went to all these shows where there were CPO, uh, commodity pool operators where they would give you money for other people. You had to get a license, of course. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is that commodity pool operator is one of the big names. They didn't want to give money to the to guys who were unknown. We were like prostitutes, I guess. <laughs> come, come give me some money. Okay. I went a different route. I decided, and that wasn't for me. And I'm very lucky that my father was very well known in Hong Kong. And my wife's family was fairly well established. So we had a number of contacts. And I picked up a little bit of with my legal game, picked up a few people. In Sydney. Mm-hmm. So we managed to raise IPO, call it an IPO for 20 mil. That's how we started. Okay. And that's pretty big for some people starting out. And if you're watching this, maybe they have a low expectation of starting with just like $100,000 or something. As a fund? 
Yeah, well, as as themselves trading, I guess. So well, of course, we're funny. A hundred thousand is, I think, is a reasonable amount for people uh, to start trading. I don't, uh, I wouldn't sniff at that. Um, I mean, if you're trading CFDs, for example, people are talking about starting with five hundred dollars and a thousand dollars, which I think is a little bit underfunded. Well, more than yeah. a little bit yeah, underfunded. Yeah, 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 of course. Well, but um, no, a hundred thousand is fine. You know, if people start with twenty, fifty thousand, I think it's quite. You you can't make a living. Trading, to, in my view, cannot make a living making twenty and fifty because I think, I think, you don't have to be the world's best trader to be successful, but really your gains are somewhere between the ten to twenty-eight, maybe top end. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, if you're something like Medallion's Renaissance Fund, it's a whole different ballgame, right? But yeah. you know, he's the best in the world at the moment. Uh -huh. So the, the average person is going to make somewhere between fifteen, and if you're really good, around twenty. So let's say fifteen and twenty, twenty-two percent is on average. Anything above that, you're starting to become exceptional. Mm. So look at your, if you're earning $100,000 a year, if you have $100,000 capital, you're making 20000 I mean, what kind of lifestyle is that going to yeah, give you? And you've got exactly. to still put money in the bank, uh -huh, you know, uh -huh. to, to build up the fund. Yeah, so your account. 100000 is yeah. not going to do a lot for you mm -hmm. in, in that respect. But if you have a job, 100000 is a very good start. Yeah. So what would you recommend people who are at a point where they're profitable trading, they know they have a good methodology and they can trade? How should they go about trying to find capital to trade? Well, there are a number of routes nowadays. First thing, you can actually set up a private limited hedge fund. I just was talking to a friend of mine at lunch yesterday or the day before, and they started off setting up as selling their services, basically an advisory newsletter, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And then from there, they gravitated to long short fund. And okay. I think they now have about 20, 30 mil under management. They started with six. And that's really one way of doing it. If you have good contacts, that's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it that if you've got a profitable approach, go see some of the hedge funds, you know, right. get to work for them, build up your contact. At the end of the day, it's a bit like any form of selling. Yeah. You need to build up your network of people right. and selling its email list, right? So you get a good email list, you've got possible purchases. So it's the same when you build a hedge fund, you've got to build a group of people that are willing to take a risk on you. There are a few funds that are genuine, that will actually seed money. If you're good, you okay. know, you go to them mm -hmm. and provide some money and they will, they, sorry, provide the records and they will provide the money for you. But you have to be careful because there's a few scam artists. Yeah, yeah, around. yeah. yeah. I, I think about those also. So how should you know about finding out if it's a scam or a good? Well, just funding? see, to me, it, it's, you have to look at the deal, right? So uh -huh. for example, I won't mention the name, but recently a, a company in Singapore was a Ponzi scheme. And it just went belly up, I think, earlier this year, about January okay. this year. And essentially, they would come to you and say, we will, we will fund you. We will give you X dollars, but you have to give us, pay us this. You've got to pay us this. You've got to pay us this. got to pay us this. Yeah. And at the end of the day, when you look at that and you're paying X number of dollars out, what are you getting in return? Now, most of these people that will fund you at worst will say, you've got to take the system off us. And if you take the system off us, it'll cost you X dollars a month, and that's it. That's, that's all you're up for. Mm. And we will give you a thing. We'll take the losses, and we split the profits with you, 60, 40, 70, 30. If you make X dollars, we'll go. That's their way, of course. Okay. If you make X dollars, we'll go 60, 70, 30 your way. So I've got a, a friend who started off as a uh, student, and she essentially has become one of the best traders for this prop house. And she's like on a 90-10 split. She gets 90% of the profits and they get 10% and they take all the losses. But she's mm -hmm. very good at what she does. Yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, there's the ways to get money. Mm -hmm. A lot of, some questions in the chat. And you guys, if you have any other questions, comment in the chat as always. Uh, th that's a good one from Chris. How do you start to manage money with 20 millions? So I think we talked about that. And did you have to prove them with a the track record from yeah, a bank? Absolutely. Well, you needed. Think of it this way. You've got money and I come mm -hmm. to you. What I've got to show you is an audited track record. Uh -huh. I mean, it's, it's got to be authorized by a public yeah. notary or accountant. You've got to be able to show your bank, your broking statements, et cetera, et cetera. As you become more famous or more successful, let's put it that way, and you're better known, a lot of that's less. It's not, as long as you're not looking for institutional money. So then a lot of that is not as necessary, if I can put okay. it that way. People okay. will take you. Well, Madoff's a great example. I shouldn't yeah, use it, but that's yeah, a great yeah. example, right? right? So in the beginning, if you want to start, you need to build up a track record. You need to get an audited statement, uh -huh. and you've got to pay for that. 
and be prepared to show your uh, broking statements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any idea of like what kind of bank you need? Do you need like a year or three years? Oh, or? well, the longer the better. I started with a three-year track record, but remember, I was doing this with private money. Private individuals generally are less mm-hmm. demanding than institutions. The other thing I would add is, although institutions are the way that most people go, I think one of the problems with institutions is that they're not very risk tolerant or loss tolerant. Mm-hmm. So the moment you enter into a drawdown mode, they're likely to pull the money out. Okay. So I always prefer the, I've always preferred the private, high net with private individuals. A, mm-hmm. the regulations aren't as tough mm-hmm. and because you're not getting money from the public, you're getting high net worth and the regulatory authorities assume that they know what they're doing. So they're less tough on requirements as far as that's mm-hmm. concerned. And don't think that, you know, don't underestimate the cost of meeting requirements. It, it can be fairly expensive. Mm-hmm. Of course. And that's a good question. So some people I've seen, and we had a question about this earlier, the fact that some people have kind of a, a bad period in the beginning when they start to trade. They lose like a bunch of money. Should they keep that as part of the track record or should they kind of discard that and have a track record? <laughs> yeah, I w- I'm sorry to laugh, but you shouldn't. Yeah, you shouldn't okay. if, if you start trading money, uh-huh. so if you, I think you owe it to your customer to show the good and the bad, uh-huh. right? So, of course, when I first started trading, I said, okay, I'm, I'm starting from 1987 because that was my first successful year. Mm-hmm. And 1987 for me started off, the first three months, I think, were losing years, so losing months. So okay. I, I did start uh-huh. from 1987 for good reason because if I'd showed them anything else part of that, then there wasn't a track record to talk on mm-hmm. to speak of. So mm-hmm. identify when you think you started making money and from then on show the good and the bad okay. because when you start trading money for people, you're probably going to duplicate those results anyway. Yeah. So they yeah, might, yeah, people yeah. might as well know about it. Uh-huh. Okay, we, that's a good point. So the way I was thinking about it, the fact that since you lost, let's say, the first three years of your trading journey, for example, mm-hmm. you can still show that. It's still part of your success mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. It's in part of your journey. So mm-hmm. I think people, investor, I don't think investors would be afraid of that because that's like the beginning of your journey. Uh, absolutely. And the question is, how do you endow your drawdowns, either private or public investors? Bull or- oh, one of the things I learned, I can't remember where I learned it from. Firstly, when you show your track record or when you're trying to sell your services, you always explain what your expected drawdown, what your maximum drawdown, the severity of the drawdown, the number of months that you're likely to endure. If you have a situation where you are having a, lo- a sudden, lo- you know, let's say, for example, I don't know. Do you trade Forex? Uh, yeah, Forex. Can? Okay, yeah. Forex. Okay. So remember when the Swiss franc against the US dollar, they mm-hmm. came collapsing and yeah, that yeah. happened yeah. long that day, whatever it was. And I had a, a heart larger than normal loss. First thing I would do is pick up the phone and I would call every single investor and say, listen, we've just had a humongous drawdown. It's mm-hmm. outside the norm. I'm explaining, I'm ringing you to explain why. I also do that for humongous profits. So that way they don't get conditioned thinking, okay, uh-huh. he's only going to pick up the phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something okay. wrong, yeah. right? That's a very good point. So yeah. that's one. The second thing is you need to be able to communicate with them. I communicated with my people at least every month for sure. And I would always produce a bit like Warren Buffett's annual letter, except that mine was mm-hmm. a monthly one. I would okay. always write to them. And remember, we only had about 22, 23 people in the fund. It wasn't mm-hmm. exactly a large fund. So... Communicating with them is not hard. Mm. If you have two or three hundred, that might be a different story. Yeah, yeah. But still, these days, with all the communication methods, whether it's going to be email, you can still do a minimum. Yeah, network. exactly. I, I, I think that communicating with your clients at least once a month, if you have fun, is an absolute must. And even if you don't pick up the phone or you have a large loss, you send them an email or something. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I think people appreciate that. At yeah. least that my people did. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I guess even those that even those periods, yeah, it's to have some people who withdraw money after big events like this. Not would. I kept the same group of people from 1990 to I think 2009. We I had a very very difficult a different structure to most funds. Mm-hmm. To understand why you have to understand the view that I take is funds will take one or two or three percent per month. Uh, sorry per annum monthly in arrears, right? So okay. that's, so if you're on 100,000 or 100 million, whatever it might be, they'll charge you 1% divided by 12 and take that each month, okay? okay? And that is because they need to meet their overheads. 
that one percent will only cover overheads. That's a general rule because our overheads are very high. With yeah. fund. Then they'll charge you somewhere between fifteen to thirty percent. Some charge forty percent of high watermark profits. In other words, every time you increase your profits on a quarterly basis, they're going to take X percent. Okay. So, for example, in March you had a you had your fund started a million dollars. Then in June it start it goes to two million. Well, they'll charge you a million dollars, a percentage of the million dollars you've made. Okay. If September your fund now starts at goes down to 1.5, there's no performance fee. Mm. The following month, uh, the following quarter, it goes to 2.5. You were at two. You've made an extra 500,000, so they're going to charge you X percent on 500,000. Okay. Now, that's very unfair to the client. Yeah, of course. Because they'll never collect the benefit uh-huh. <laughs> unless they pull it out straight away. So my fund is a little bit different. I, I said, you're locked in for three years unless I have a drawdown of X percent in which case the fund immediately closes. At the end of three years, I dispute, distribute the profits and I will take my money at that time. Okay. Okay. You're then invited to reinvest. So mm-hmm. the first time I did that, you can imagine people took all the profits and reinvested the original capital, right? Mm-hmm. But as we moved along and they got comfortable, they actually wrote a couple of times, said, don't worry about redistributing. We're just going to leave it there. Okay. Then I had one really difficult period. I can't remember the years now, but three years I didn't make money. So I was thinking, this is the worst, right? Uh, when I closed the fund this time, I never got to my maximum drawdown, okay. but I didn't make money for three years. Mm-hmm. If it had been an institution, money would have been whipped out. Yeah. These guys didn't. Not a single person took their money out. And this was, of course, well into this 20-year period that I'd been with them. I only lost one client, 2008, remember, 2007, I lost one client because we had just started a new rotation and he wrote to me and he said, look, I'm really in disparate states, professional, I'm the main professional investors. I lost blurb number of dollars to these other people because of the crash. Can you let me out? Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, I can't let one person out. I can let everybody else out, everybody at the same time. So we closed it, I think, a year into the fund. And then started it again. The only one that didn't come in was him, which is fair enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, I only lost about one client in that whole period. Okay. That's interesting. I had a talk with the fund manager who basically what he does is every year he promises like a minimum return. And if he doesn't achieve that return, then he doesn't get paid. Well, that's fair What enough. are your thoughts on this? Would it be a good um, method to go with? Or? Well, in, in essence, I think year to year, it's... If you don't make a minimum return, you've got to be confident enough to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And it's up depends on you, really. I mean, yeah. I think it's very fair to the client. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's a question of whether you, you're able to survive. Yeah. Because let's face it, as I said, the 1% or 2% is going to meet your overheads. So if the client makes X percent, you don't make any money for, for that 12 months. Mm-hmm. Can you survive for the next 12 months? That's really yeah. what it comes yeah, yeah. down to. <laughs> right. Because you got your twelve months of overheads, you know. So it's a matter of uh, it matter for the client, a matter for the hedge fund manager. We had a question from Kimo about your training style and kind of what you analyze in the market. I know we've talked about a little bit the kind of how the market moves and things like that, but is there anything else you look at in the market? Oh yeah, I mean, my approach to the market is basically Wyckoff and a market profile. Developed a new a tool I called Barrow Swings. It's a bit hard to show without a chart, but if you look at any time frame chart, let's say you look at a daily chart, mm. you've got intraday buyers and sellers, you've got people who buy and sell within two, you know, one or two days, you've got people for a week, month, and so on. All of these are within that one chart, mm. and there's very little thing, very little out there that distinguishes the different types of time frames. And so Barrow Swings does that, and okay. it's in the nature of trends, which you uh-huh. uh, nice enough. To, that was nature of trends all about, really, yeah, okay. what Barrow Swings were about. So I use Barrow Swings a lot, but the context of Barrow Swings, I mean, all Barrow Swings is just a tool to identify timeframes. The context of that, the theoretical context of that is Wyckoff, and then I thought market profiles took the Wyckoff theory to the next stage. Mm. So they combined together, and basically both of them looked very closely at the relationship between volume range and type of trend mm. now qe put a damper on that because with qe essentially people thought this is never going to go down simply because the government if it does go down is going to jump in and and, and they were right you know uh-huh. we had the sustained trend and then we had the trump uh, what i call the trump rally which we yeah. also had and it's only recently now in the last what, couple of weeks that we're starting to see markets return to normal 
mm-hmm. where you're starting to get some very large pullbacks. Yeah. So that that's essentially the way that I look at the markets. Now, for any discretionary rule-based trader, I think there are certain elements you need to look at. So questionnaire I give my students to say, what's the trend of the time frame I'm trading? Mm-hmm. Is it likely to continue or change? So that's that depends. Answer to those questions depend on my strategy. Am I mm-hmm. going to be long, short? Or if I can't answer them, then I stay out. Once you've identified the trend, you're looking for zone setups, entry bars, initial stops. They're the four, next four things that will be part of my plan. And then I look at my trade management. So if I'm in profit, how am I going to manage the trade? Mm-hmm. Which I think of all the things we've talked about except for trend, that is the most important. How do you manage a winning trade? And that's going to make the yeah. difference between a really good result and something that's mediocre. Do you have a preferred style of doing this? Because some people like to take partial profit or move their stop loss to break even. I have a, a belief about, I'm going to answer that in a complicated fashion, I'm sorry. <laughs> I have a belief about the way that we interact with the market or our plans interact with the markets. There are times when it's normal. Mm-hmm. And in that situation, what I call normal times, I will use a thing that called partial exits where I exit the first a third, usually twice the initial stop, so that when I exit the first third, I'm at break-even. I leave mm-hmm. my stop where it is on the remaining two-thirds. So if I take it out and the market comes down and stops me out, let's say I'm long, then I won't lose on the trade. My idea is always preservation of capital. Then the next set of thirds is when I get out at a logical objective, and that's where I need to get to make money. I really need to get this second set of profits. The last third is what I call a blue sky, and that is basically an, you know, one of those trades where, wow, this yeah. is going much further than I thought, okay. and that's usually trailing stop or okay. change in trend pattern. Okay. So that's when I'm, it's normal. There are times when I'm in ebb stage where everything you do is wrong. You know, you, you've got the super-duper setup or super-duper, I don't know, pattern of entry, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. and it just fails. So if you buy, the market goes down. If you sell, the market goes up, which is what I call ebb stage. I handle that by getting into a trade and exiting very quickly. So, for example, the moment the trade goes one ATR from entry and I'm in ebb stage, I will immediately exit half the position and I'll put my stop on the remaining position at break even. So very different to the rule mm-hmm. of three. When I'm in flow stage, that's the point where Everything I do is right. You know, you get those occasional. Easy markets. Yeah. Yeah. Well, easy markets, easy for you. There I will ride. I will actually ride rather than take out partially. I will add to my positions. I I do almost a turtle thing where I, you know, I I will let the market stop me out when I'm in flow stage because Mm -hmm. literally what I'm in sync with the market. I cannot do anything wrong. Just got to be careful you don't get too arrogant in those because yeah, the market exactly. turns around. Exactly. You're in deep shit, uh, excuse the word. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I guess for some people, it's going to be hard to define what period of the market we're in now and what happens because you can have a couple of loss, but then does that mean change your style? Yeah. Well, to me, it's not so much the, it's you and the market. It's uh-huh. the way your market is either yourself or your plan, if I can put it that way. And yes, it's going to always be a little bit with benefit of hindsight. I used to do it statistically. So okay. if I had X number of losses, consecutive losses, or uh, X number of percentage loss of capital, that would tell me I'm in ebb or flow at a normal stage. Mm-hmm. But with experience, you get to know pretty well yeah, that yeah. you're in ebb. You're like, I'm in reasonable flow stage at the moment. I got into a trade on the 30-year bonds, mm-hmm. and we were talking about it in class with the guys. And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to sell the market here, blah, 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 market tanks. And then, this was only a couple of days ago, she closes off the lows. And so that night's meeting, I said, I'm out this morning. I actually sent an email out to the guys just in case they didn't look at the market, whatever. I said, we talked about this last night. They don't copy, but I want them to understand. And I'm out of this trade as soon as the market opens this morning because it looks as though the selling is over at the wrong place. In the structure of what I look at, it was selling was over in the wrong place. I think it was about 143, 144, what? We went to 146 last night. Okay. Uh, you know, so it, those are the things that you get to know. So that to me is flow. Even though I didn't make any money out of it, I'm in sync with the market. I mean, mm-hmm. instead of l- losing money, I actually made a couple of bucks. Mm-hmm. So that to me is flow stage. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, initially it's statistics, 
and then you pick up the intuitive gut feel that you know what you're doing. I love it. And so, what does your trading looks like in terms of kind of strategy and of, of yeah strategy and time frame? Because I guess it's one thing to trade, but managing your funds like a completely different thing. You have some work to do with that. And what, what classes after also? It's how you manage all of this. Managing is not hard. I mean, I've been very lucky. My my father was someone who managed his time and and his mm. thing. You know, uh, a little bit off topic, but when he passed away, he left mom a set of instructions, and he anticipated what his company would do. He said, if they do X, you do this. Make sure you get my superannuation. So he taught me how to manage my affairs very well. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I learned and then relearned recently was that we work on micro levels. If we do things one small bit of at a time instead of trying to do everything at once, we actually get more done. Oh yeah. So I don't actually have problems with studies or well studies too because I you know consider all the studying teaching, trading, and so on. That's not the issue. I think that you can do that if you're prepared to organize yourself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I also believe in that because other people struggle with time. They have a job and they cannot trade. But there's so much ways to, I think, find well, time. Now. You know, for a start, if you're, if there's something I always tell, and this I'll, I'll pass on to the audience. If you have a job and you can't look at the market intraday, don't, don't trade intraday. Yeah. You know, you can trade end of day bars. Yeah. yeah. The entry bar is bumpiest, optimal, and your stops will be a little bit big, but so what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And are you trading intraday or only on a swing? No, no. Day? For me, I'm a, I'm, I, I basically am a, what I call an 18-day trader, monthly trend trader, right? Okay. But my entry is 60 minutes. Okay. So I will try and enter on the 60-minute bar because okay. it gives me a better entry point, yeah. stops yeah, yeah. are tighter. But you need – that came with a bit of with experience. I mean, I didn't yeah. do that straight away. Uh-huh. And how do you manage this? aspect of kind of being notified when it's time to enter because 60 minutes start for me it's very hard to trade i can trade it sometimes but whenever i travel or i don't have time or i work or something i just forget to look at the chart and then i don't play straight oh, okay. on that time frame well i don't know how to answer that question because i don't have that problem for example if i'm i will n- never enter even if i'm trading 60 minutes on the asian time zone if i'm trading fx okay no i just don't want to know and i developed a thing called so for some currencies I develop a thing called flow, which basically says if something happens in the British time frame, the, U- mm. the European time frame, it will flow into the US. Okay. okay? Some currencies won't. Some mm-hmm. currencies, whatever, there is no re- relationship between what happens in the, U- in the European t- time zone and the US time zone. They can be totally different. Yeah. So I need to know what time zone I'm going to need to look at. So mm-hmm. mainly if I've got flow, I'll be entering in the UK time zone. Okay. If I've got the currency that only does the US, then I've got two options because I don't stay up all night, obviously. (laughs) So I might stay up till about 11 o'clock or something like that, but then I'll just wait for the end of the day. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's, so I don't have, so the morning session for me is free. So anything up to about 4.30, I'm fine. Okay. Hong Kong time, obviously. Okay. And then up to about 12 at night. Okay, that's that's where you would see it because I've never entered trades. I think since I travel in Asia, I never entered trade in the morning. Hmm. Always like later or yeah, on a four-hour chart, it'll be later in the day, and the one-hour chart as well. So that's interesting. But I didn't didn't notice. So <laughs> you mentioned it. Be happy. We have a couple of questions here. So Greek and Tweak, can you ask his opinion on how to scale your trading account size and trading volume? Well, scale up for me for a start is separating to flow, ebb, and and uh-huh. normal. So my normal size, as we'll talk about in a moment, will be somewhere I can reduce it as much as seventy-five percent, depending okay. on how what level of ebb I'm at, uh-huh. and flow, I will increase it as much as two and a half times okay. my normal size. So you change your position size every every time? Well, I change my position size depending upon what stage I'm in. So, mm-hmm. you know, these stages can last yeah. two or three months. Okay. Know? So it's not as though you're changing it every trade. Uh-huh. Normal size is a function of two things. I do use the Turtles formula for uh, to assess position size according to volatility. Mm-hmm. And then I use, you know, what's my stop relative to my entry? How much, how much am I prepared to risk? And the lesser of the two contract sizes is what I'll use. So if Turtle say I can trade 100 mil and the stop says I can trade 50, I'll trade 50. Now, one thing that beginners don't realize is idea out there that I should trade 1% or 2%. 
And that's fine as a starting point when you don't have any stats. Yeah. But when you get your stats going, one or two percent may be too big or may not be big enough. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's a function of two things. It's a function of what is the probability of consecutive loss, given your trading plan, mm-hmm. and what is your average annual return? So, for example, if your average annual return is 15% and you've got a probability of consecutive loss of 8 and you risk 2%, yeah, that's 16%. You just wiped out. You've got, you're running a risk of wiping out a whole year mm-hmm. with one set of consecutive losses. Mm-hmm. So, to me, someone like that should be risking about a quarter of a percent. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you've got someone who's doing 15%, probability of consecutive loss is 2 well, 2% is probably going to be too small. Yeah. So I like to say you should risk about half of your annual, for probability of consecutive loss, you'd be mm. about half of your annual average return. Okay. Yeah. So that if you hit that, then you lose only half of your yearly Exactly, profit. of your yearly okay. profit. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty good. And I guess the follow-up question to that, because so when you talk about how to scale your training account size, I guess that means how do you build kind of a small account or a bigger account? Okay. Well, first off, I'm a firm believer that you don't leave all your profits in the account. Okay. You know? So if you've had a, a certain amount of run, you, you want to pull something out and you want to enjoy that of it. So that's mm. the first thing. The second thing is, if, you're, if he's talking about building up your account size, how much do you use? I don't believe in just calculating your positions based on each profitable win or each profitable loss because mm-hmm. of the asymmetry of loss and asymmetry of win problem. Mm-hmm. Because if you keep just, okay, I'm going to risk 2% of my capital size and you've had a good run, your highest position is going to be, will contain the biggest loss yeah. by definition. And you're, when you're losing money, your smallest position will be when you're, you're going to make money. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So you need to, there was a guy called uh, Don Scott. He was, when I was in Australia, he was a, not a trader. He was a, the first professional punter, horse racing punter. Okay. And he used to say, the amount that you risk has nothing to do with how much you've made or how much you've lost, has had nothing to do with the probability of today's success. So what I do is I say, okay, I work out what, when, how much money I need to make percentage of capital before I will add it to my account. How much okay. money do I have to lose before I will deduct my account? So mm-hmm. that takes care, care to a certain extent of the asymmetry of risk problem. Mm-hmm. So that, that's what I would do. So for example, let's just say I make 25% per annum. So anytime I make half of that, I will then only when I make half of that will I add it to my account. If I'm adding every time I make 12, I will reduce my account every time I lose six. So it's okay. losing, I take it out more quickly mm-hmm. than when I make money. So that, okay. that's how I size up. Smart would do it. Love it. And in, in, in regards to trading, what kind of market do you trade? Do you trade pretty much everything you see? I don't trade the softs. I trade the financials mainly. Okay. Occasionally, I'm tempted to trade the soys. I've been promising to trade the soys for about 30 years now. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> S&Ps, bonds, interest rates, um, uh-huh. foreign exchange, okay. gold. Yeah. And you apply the same method to everything? Or same, method method to everything okay. no, same method. I'm not a mechanical trader, so if the theory Wyckoff and market profiles stand up. As long as it's a free market, I think these theories apply. And yes, certain government actions will affect it, like QE mm-hmm. affected mm-hmm. this idea of volume and range, but you know, they'll eventually come back. You just make adjustments. Okay. okay. That, that's a good insight. And what I love is the fact that you have a process for pretty much everything. So you reorganize. Yes. And some people think discussion trading is going to be like very, very kind of easygoing and things I that don't think it's ever easy Exactly. Going. So it's, yeah. it's completely different, which is what people have to understand sometimes. Yeah. So what would be your advice for people who want to get into discretionary trading? Well, as I said, firstly, you've you, you got to understand that you've got to get into the discipline of executing your rules, whatever they wow. might be. Because discretionary trading, the rules with discretionary trading are pretty straightforward. You follow your rules, but you have a rule that says that allows you not to follow your rules. Mm-hmm. But in order to do that, you need to know that when you follow, don't follow your rules, you're actually going to have an edge. You, you not, oh, you know, I got up this morning and the sun wasn't up, therefore I'm not going to follow my rules today. You know, <laughs> that's not going to work. So for people who are discretionary traders, I would suggest to you that you test everything. Mm. There's a software called Edgewonk, which I really yeah. love, 169 bucks or something. Uh-huh. It's really inexpensive, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. worth every penny. And they have this alternative strategy. And I, I fully recommend people utilize that to test their strategy. So for example, I exit on a trailing stop of 30 points. Let's just say for argument's mm-hmm. sake. 
What happens if I don't have the trailing stop, alternative strategy one? What happens if I trading point of 60 points? And you're still following your rules, but then you're also testing at the same time. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to get someone to do it for you. You can do this yourself yeah. while you're trading. Yeah. And honestly, the insights that you get when you do that is incredible. Uh-huh. This is interesting because you could do the same thing with like a co and back to sit over there, yeah. like in the past, but that would take more, more time. As and and you need the expertise. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to using your, your live result to mm. test it. That's pretty good. Uh, we'll do it for sure. What kind of maximum drawdown and minimum return do investors look for? Wow. That's really a matter for you, right? For me, I know my, my theoretical, it used to be around the 28% month. That was the maximum drawdown I had in those three years okay. that I was telling you about. Uh-huh. In the last five or six years, I've reduced that. Yeah, through one of my students, they, they said something one day and I thought, that sounds interesting. So when I go into ebb stage, I'm cutting my positions more quickly. Mm-hmm. But I can't very well give you it. So, you know, some people might be happy with a 6% return. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you're happy with a 6% return, then your maximum drawdown should be no more than 6%. At the very yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Obviously, I, I prefer to be around 3 or 4 Okay. If your return is 40, 50%, then obviously a maximum drawdown is going to be more. This is such an individual thing. It's, mm-hmm. I find it a very difficult question mm-hmm. to answer. And the other thing is the fact that you could always risk more and have a bigger return, a bigger drawdown. Yeah, so, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Of the risk. Yeah, interesting. So if you guys have any questions for Ray, comment in the chat and we'll make sure to answer those. We have a couple more to go. And what do you see most traders do wrong in the market these days, especially people you teach or who come to your seminars? Okay. It's human nature for for a start. Yeah. We recently had these group of people come through, right? And we, it's not. I don't consider my fees except exceptionally high, mm-hmm. but they're not really. It's not a hundred bucks or yeah. anything like that. So they're paying roughly about two and a half thousand US dollars. Mm-hmm. One guy did absolutely no work. Yeah. Okay. None at all. One guy did. So he didn't learn anything. By the time we got, I was explaining to you the way the course runs. By the time we got the practical side, he couldn't do any of the practical side because he hadn't done any of the theory. One guy did all the theory but wouldn't trade, just would refuse to put a trade on. You know, there's always a reason why he wouldn't put a trade on. Then we had about half a dozen guys who were wonderful. I mean, they did everything instructor, educator, whatever you want to call us, would want. They did the work. If they didn't understand, they would har- harass you until you explained it to them. <laughs> okay. And then when they went to trading, they, I won't say that they all made a ton of money, especially in the current market conditions, but mm-hmm. they all had a process that they followed. And I have every confidence that when they leave the course, they will be, you know, continue the success that they've had mm-hmm. in follow- because the process is a good one. They've got to, you know, we back-tested their plans for them and they test their um, – Plans for me, as far as I can see at this stage, given the limited amount of trading, it's fine. It has an edge. So if they continue executing the process, they will make money. And mm-hmm. then as they become more experienced, they get the nuances, they will improve on that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also a matter of continuous improving. Yeah, absolutely. On a daily yeah. basis or weekly yeah. basis. Yeah. And I guess that leads us to, are there any, do you have any advice you'd like to give people in terms of, of that or... Because I feel like a lot of people, they want to, like, they like to learn, but they don't like to work harder to apply. Yeah. I think trading is the hardest profession in the world for two reasons. Uh, firstly, it's against human nature. Uh-huh. You know, we have to accept that losses are part of the game. Yeah. We have to accept that consecutive losses are part of the game. And if you don't prepare to accept that, then walk away because mm-hmm. it's never going to happen. Secondly, you have to work at this. This is something that you can't sit down and read a book, sit down for an exam you get high marks. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, you got to go out there and practice. Now, there's a thing that uh, Anders Ericsson came out with called uh, deliberative practice, mm-hmm. uh, which basically teaches how to turn knowledge into a skill. And one of the essential elements is practice with immediate feedback, which comes back to, I think you're producing a course with a coach. I mean, that, that yeah. to me is critical uh-huh. because Ericsson's work clearly shows that if you don't give immediate feedback, the longer the, the time between action, result, and feedback, the longer it takes a person to learn. Mm-hmm. So trading is about the only really tough position in the world that people don't think they need a coach. And, yeah. and I really have a thing about that. I really believe that if you want to succeed, you want to be the best in the world or best you can be, better way of putting mm-hmm. it, you need a coach. Yeah. If you want to be a weekend golf player, then fine. You, know, you want to <laughs> dabble, yeah, go ahead. But if you don't, 
you need a coach. I mean, imagine someone like, um, what's the name of that tennis player who won the Australian Open? Uh, I'm not a tennis fan, but I, I love, my mother loved him. Federer. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine Federer getting to the top of his profession without a coach. It's just, yeah. you know, it's nonsense, right? Yeah. So my advice to people is if you're not prepared to do the work, then accept that you're going to be a weekend trader, put in very small amounts of money, trade very small and have your fun, but be prepared to lose whatever you've put in. Mm-hmm. If you really want to be as good as you want to be, then you need to get coached. You need to put the education in and you need to put the time. The fact that you spend money getting a coach doesn't mean anything if you don't practice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's kind of easy to say I paid for a coach, but then I didn't do any work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is not going to get you anywhere, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to remind you guys that the link for Ray's book is going to be in the, in the uh, description below if you want to check out his book. And how, you, how can people find you if they want to connect with you or reach out? Yeah, I think the best thing for, for uh, people is I write a blog about four times a week. Nice. So www.tradingsuccess.com backslash blog. And um, I've, I've been getting some really good feedback on the blog. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I think that's right because people can get some inspiration on a like daily basis, which yeah, is interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What well, the way I've organized a blog is Monday, Tuesday tends to be market commentary, mm-hmm. and then Wednesday is a teaching day. Try and find something that people need to learn, and the fourth one is the one that's interesting. Thursdays, I try and find things outside trading that would be of benefit to traders. Yeah, yeah. So that's the way the blog. There's a lot of those. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot. Yeah, it's in different areas. Yeah. Do you have an example of things outside trading that can impact your trading or get, that you can apply to trading very easily? Well. For example, the importance of getting enough sleep, yeah. nutrition, exercise, the modern breakthroughs in memory and learning, I think, is the biggest area at the moment that will impact outside trading okay. that impacts traders. Yeah. I like it. Uh, a couple of questions just came in. That's awesome. Do you meditate? Yes. Okay. Uh, take, this is really important. Oh, I can actually pass this. There's a thing called acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance and commitment trading by a guy called Harris Australian. And to me, that has been the biggest breakthrough in the psychological world because he was shown that drug addicts, wife beaters, alcoholics, and so on could obtain immediate benefit. Well, immediate being within two or three months as against two or three years or 10 or 20 years of a normal cognitive therapy. Mm -hmm. And then Gary Dayton, Dr. Gary Drayton, started applying it. He, he wrote a book called Trading in the Flow, I think, something like that. Anyway, D-R-A-Y-T-O-N, it's a good book. And he started mentioning, he mentioned in there that he was using ACT in his work. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. So I went into okay. it. Um, and then I found ACT really is very useful. Because ACT separates two things. It separates the left brain stuff, which I call the left brain, how to set goals, make sure you have your values. That's the traditional way of getting to point A to point B. But the other side is the mindfulness approach. And he combines, my ACT combines the two. And you know those times when you're sitting in front of the screen or you're looking at it and, and suddenly you think, well, the other night when if you were long or short the bonds, you, you would have had this experience. Powell came out to speak, right? Mm-hmm. So the bonds are rallying really strongly and looked okay. as though there was no ending. So he said something, bang, the market drops. In those times, the ability to manage yourself, to say, what is the market telling me rather than, oh my God, I'm losing money. Mm-hmm. That's so critical, and that's what AC does, does for you, okay. and mindfulness does for you. So mm-hmm. yes, I do meditate. Interesting. Have you seen the difference between either, let's say, traders in North America compared to here in Asia or Hong Kong? I, I feel like people are more willing to meditate here compared to in North America. Oh, that's only me. Actually, I don't get that feeling. I don't get the feeling that people in Hong Kong and China are into the meditative self. awareness thing is as much say as the u.s okay as i said i just came back from los angeles doing a course and they're all about self-awareness looking inside Mm -hmm. and and so on and so forth the east basically says very practical where do i buy where do i sell just make me money what do i do (laughs) in addition to your book you also have a few trainings or programs what can people expect from that Okay. And what is it about? Maybe give a small description. Yeah, sure. Basically, I'm trying to set up a school. So we start at the basic level, and it's the person who's never traded before. We usually give a mechanical system. 
We tell them where the mechanical system won't work. We give them rudiments of money management and try and get them in terms of the psych stuff on how to keep your journals, to get consistently keep your equity journal and keep your psychological journal and what to draw from them. So that's your basic level. The next step up, we try and give them the theories that I think are very, very useful to the markets, which is Wyckoff and Market Profile, and show them how to create a discretionary rule-based system, and then take the next step further, how to use that information to create a trading plan. Mm-hmm. Next level up is the actual, what I call Ray Wave. I won't get into that. It's an objective uh, Elliott Wave, because I find that very useful for long-term forecasts. And market profile, which is very useful for entries and exits. Mm-hmm. And then we have a course called Ultimate, which basically is teaches nothing except how to execute your plan on a consistent basis. So that it's like a, a little think of a high school or kindergarten through to university level. Okay, powerful. That's, that's great. And I guess that's going to be we can conclude on that. So, what would be your advice for people who have a lot of technical knowledge on how to trade the patterns, indicators, everything? but they cannot make money or they have problem with emotion when they come to trade. Okay. Um, first off, I think preparation is going to be your key. If you have a set of rules, if those rules have a positive expectancy and you're not executing them, let's put it that way, then the best thing you can do is to prepare for them before the trade. What does the market have to look like for you to enter the market? And then in terms of trade management, what does the market have to look like for you to stay in the trade? What does the market have to look like for you to say, look, this is not working. I'm getting out. And to really, you talk about meditation, to visualize that, write it down at whatever form of visualization it, you, it works for you, whether you do it mentally, whether you write it down, whether you put it in a record or whatever, but go through it so that it becomes automatic. So that when the time happens, you don't not do it, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Uh, so if you've got a stop at a certain level, people talk about putting stops and they don't really think, I'm going to lose money. I want you to think about, okay, if I'm going to put a stop here, I'm going to see the market hitting my stop. I'm going to see myself losing that. And it's okay because it's only this one trade of the next 10,000. You know, it's not the end of the world if I lose on this trade. And if they do that, they're going to be much more disciplined. Love it. I think that's powerful advice. So, Ray, thank you very much for the interview. I think people will like it. If you have any question or any comment for Ray, comment below. And we'll make sure to monitor those comments and give a like if you enjoyed the video today. And we'll catch you guys pretty soon.